Thank you, Joe, for leading us in that prayer time together. And as you may have been able to tell when I did the baptism, I'm struggling with the capacity to speak this morning. Oh, I just felt like I was 12 years old right there. Um, so uh, yesterday I couldn't speak at all, so this is a vast improvement um, over yesterday. So Lord willing, we will get through our time together of preaching. Um, and I just will give you a little warning. Uh, my wife, Amy, is our family pharmacist, and so she's just been shoveling pills towards me. I don't know what I'm taking. Here, take this blue one. Here, take this red one. Take this white one and yellow one. And so if I say something today that sounds heretical, we'll just blame the medication I'm on to keep me upright. Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. We are coming back to our week-by-week, verse-by-verse study through John's Gospel Uh, That is our general practice here at Lookout Valley as we take a whole book of the Bible and we trek through the whole thing. We are towards the end of a two-year journey through the Gospel of John. And this morning we're going to look uh, really at an interesting section that transitions from chapter 12 into chapter 13 and the focus of John's Gospel. Uh, Last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday. We celebrated Easter the rising of Jesus from the dead on that first Resurrection Sunday. But as we come to the text this morning, we're actually going to be going backwards that week to Tuesday. This is on Tuesday of Holy Week, uh, three days before Good Friday, five days before Sunday when he was resurrected. So we we may feel a little bit of a biblical schizophrenia here that we're going forward and then backward again, but we'll be here for the next um, several months together as we conclude Lord willing, the book of John. But again, this is a very pivotal passage in John's gospel. Uh, It turns right here that Jesus goes from his public preaching to the crowds out there to now we're going to see in chapter 13 and following his inward teaching to his closest disciples. Jesus will, in this passage, cut off the opportunity for the Jewish people to believe while he's there. That's pretty harsh, and that's a harsh saying, but that's exactly what we see in the passage. I'm sure many of you are like me in that you have particular aspects of your own character and nature that, well, could be refined a little bit. Uh, You have flaws like all of us have flaws. One of the ways that the Lord has been working on me for, well, 54 years is in the area of my patience. Anybody else struggle with patience? Yeah, of course, we, we probably all do. We can all become impatient over different situations and experiences. But one of the grace gifts that the Lord gives us to work on our patience, to basically serve like sandpaper to rub off those rough edges, is our children. Would you agree with that, parents? That our children, excuse me, help us uh, wear off that, those rough edges of impatience. And so now, myself as a father of five And a grandfather of four, boy, I'm telling you, they have been a gift to me, not only the joy that I experience as a parent and a grandparent, but they're a gift in that they're a tool in the hand of the Lord to rub off those rough areas of impatience. As we develop patience, we are developing the character of God. Did you know that God is patient? That's how the Bible describes him in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is forbearing. In fact, in the book of Galatians chapter 5, the Bible records there the fruit of the Spirit of God, love, joy, peace, patience. 
So if we develop patience, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is the third person of the triune God, is the character of God being developed in our lives as we become patient. Uh, We see examples of the Lord's patience all through the Bible. You think about the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Here they are in the garden. There was basically one rule, one rule that God gave them. Look at it at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The rule is this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know the rest of the story, right? They ate of it. But did they die that day? No. Adam actually lived another 930 years. So here's the warning, but in the patience of God, he prolonged his life. Another example is the people uh, of the earth during the days of Noah. The wickedness on the planet was at an all-time high, has not been seen like that since, and God is patient with them. God raises up Noah to be a preacher, a prophet of repentance, and he's proclaiming repentance to the people. How many years did, Mo, did Noah, excuse me, preach repentance to the wickedness of that land? 120 years. That's patience. That is long-suffering. That is forbearance. Because here's the deal. Because God is absolutely holy. Because God is absolutely righteous. Every sin we commit, every time we blaspheme his name, every time we pervert his design. It is an offense to God. You think you're offended by what's happening in our world today? You think you're offended by the rampant sin and the wickedness, by the perversion of God's natural design and his good order? It's nothing compared to the offense it is to God because of his holiness. And the very fact that God has not consumed us all in a moment with fire of judgment is a demonstration of his patience. God is patient. But here's the deal. Mark this. You should not presume on the patience of the Lord. Do not presume. I got plenty of time. Do not presume on the patience of the Lord. The title of my message this morning is this. The patience of the Lord runs out. There is an end to his patience. We saw that with Adam and Eve. We saw that with um, the people of Noah's day. And we can see that with the people of Israel. You move to the people of Israel towards the end of of their heyday, whenever they had kings who were reigning, um, they were incredibly disobedient to God. And God gave them a warning. uh, Just before the people of Judah were carted away 900 miles to live under bondage and slavery in Babylon, that wicked pagan city, Here's what the Lord said in 2 Chronicles 36. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Friends, there comes a time when the patience of the Lord runs out. And I would submit to you that at no time and in no place have we seen the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of the Lord than in the time when 
God himself was manifest in human flesh. When Jesus was here walking this planet, when he was God dwelt among us, that's how the Bible describes him here in this Gospel of John in the first chapter, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Bible describes in that prologue, in that first chapter of John, that he came to his own people. But what did his own people do? They rejected him. They didn't receive him. Look at John 1, 9 through 11. The true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, three years later from this John chapter 1, we are here in John chapter 12. And what we can see from the words of Jesus here in John 12, the patience of the Lord for unbelieving Israel has run out. It's run out. Let's see how that comes to be in verse 36 and following to the end of the chapter. This is the inerrant word of God. John 12, beginning in verse 36. While you have the light... Believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our, our God remains forever. As I mentioned before, this is Jesus's final public statement to the crowds. He will now turn in chapter 13 away from the crowds and turn intently toward his inner disciples. And they will, over these next three days, turn away from Jesus and call for his crucifixion. He makes in this statement one final appeal, one final invitation to believe, to trust. And Jesus clearly says in verse 36, while you have the light, what's the implication? You won't always have the light. While you have the light, believe in the light. You won't always have Messiah in flesh and blood before you, walking and talking. 
you won't always have the opportunity to believe. And then the text says, he departed from them and hid himself. He went away. He said, here's your opportunity. Okay, no takers. I gone. I'm out of here. The opportunity has closed. Now, there's a whole lot going on in these verses, and we don't have the time, and I don't have the voice to talk about all of them. But I do want to point out some profound realities that we see from this passage in the Bible. Three crises, if you will, that lead to this door of opportunity being shut. The patience of the Lord running out. The first one is this. We see this crisis, a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. There is this crisis of the people of Israel, of Judah, of Judea, of Jerusalem. Here during the week of Passover, hundreds of thousands, upwards of a million pilgrims coming into that city, and they are trapped in unbelief. Well, one thing we can see in our day today, and that has been significantly amplified over the last couple of years, is there is a pervasive sense of skepticism. Would you agree with that? There's a pervasive sense of criticism. There's a pervasive sense of cynicism. We see things and we are not very apt to believe them, right? Uh, We can hear a a news report. We can read a headline. And these things have been uh, multiplied with the arrival of things like artificial intelligence, chat GPT, um, deep fake videos. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say deep fake videos? These are things that are computer-generated videos of people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Cruise and others that it looks like they're saying things and it looks like they're doing things and it's just all computer-generated, but it looks real. And so we have this developed because of the rampant technology around us, developed this sense of skepticism in our world, of cynicism. I read a recent study from 2021 by the Pew Research Group where they um, polled 9,000 Americans And they asked him, where do you get your news from? What's your primary news source? And 53% of Americans say they get their news from social media. I'm a part of that 53%. I don't get a newspaper. I don't watch the evening news. I go to Twitter and scroll through my feed. What's going on in the world today? That same poll of 9,000 adults asked them, do you believe what you read? Now, 53% of them said they get all their news from social media. 59% said, no, I don't believe what I'm reading. (laughs) So most of Americans, when they read the headlines, they say, I don't believe this. There's a pervasive sense of skepticism, of cynicism. And and I'm not telling you anything you've not seen and you don't know. So friends, whether you get your news from the Wall Street Journal or from the New York Times or from some Substack uh, subscription or Yahoo News, ultimately, whether or not you believe those news sources, it is inconsequential. But if you don't believe the source of ultimate truth, Jesus, that is eternally consequential. Do not bring this sense of skepticism and cynicism to the truth of who Jesus is. Look at verse 37 again. Uh, John writing says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. We read this and we wonder how can this be possible? How can it be possible that Jesus walking among them They knew of his miracles. They saw the mighty works. They heard about the healings, but yet they still did not believe in them. This is not some illusion. This is not a deep fake video of Jesus on an iPhone screen. This is flesh and blood in front of them, but yet 
they still did not believe them. Why not? It's a crisis of faith. And we see this crisis really in two unique ways. First of all, they did not pursue belief. The people of Jesus' day did not pursue belief. Again, verse 37, they still did not believe in him. What this indicates is they had the opportunity to believe. They could have believed. He was right there. They could have believed in him, but they did not. And the reason I say pursue belief, because the the tense of the verb is this tense of a continuous action verb. They kept on and kept on not believing in Jesus. There is evidence and evidence and proof and proof, and they kept on pursuing unbelief. Their stubborn, ongoing rejection of their Messiah. In fact, notice how Jesus indicts the people of Jerusalem. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 13, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Watch this. And you were not willing. They were pursuing unbelief. They had no desire, no interest in believing. And think about it. This is John's commentary. John was the last living apostle of the Lord, the last living of the 12. He's writing this, scholars think, some several decades removed from the events. And it's almost like he's looking back at his time with Jesus and he's recalling the rampant unbelief when Jesus is right there in their midst and he's still dumbfounded by it. They had all these signs. They had all these miracles. They had all these profound words and yet they still were not willing to believe. And then John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, is going to present some reasons for their unbelief, some proof of why they didn't believe, and he goes back to the Scripture. In the passage we just read, some of you probably picked up on it. If you have a Bible, you can probably see the footnote. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he actually quotes from two of the most familiar chapters of Isaiah in the Bible, chapter 6 and chapter 53. If you've been in church any while, you've heard chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train of his robe was filling the temple, right? You've, seen, you've heard that before. Well, John quotes from that chapter. And the other chapter he quotes from is chapter 53, the chapter that gives specific detail about the scourging and the crucifixion and the piercing of the Lord 700 years before it happened. And so th- these two very familiar chapters in the book of Isaiah are the two chapters that John Uh, the revelator goes back to and he picks these two verses and he says here's the proof text of why the people of Israel didn't believe in Jesus when he was there in their presence why not why didn't they believe well for each of those familiar chapters in Isaiah John reveals not only did they not pursue belief but look at this next point they were prevented from belief they were prevented from belief Now, that may be a little hard to swallow on the first read. In between the two quotes from Isaiah, chapter 38, which, or excuse me, verse 38, which quotes from Isaiah 53, and verse 40 that quotes from Isaiah 6, John makes this commentary. Look at verse 39 again. Therefore, they could not believe. I want you to circle those two words, could not. The people that Jesus is speaking to there in in John 12. The people that John's writing about, John says, therefore, they could not 
believe. What? I thought everybody had the opportunity to believe. The patience of the Lord runs out. You will not always have an opportunity to believe. One of the things that we need to remember as we consider God as he's presented to us and revealed to us in the Bible is that we do not need to fashion a God after our own image. We do not need to fashion a God as we presume he should be. Oh, you know, the God I believe in, you've heard that before, right? Well, the God I believe in, this is Oprah Winfrey's famous quote, well, the God I believe in, here you go, Oprah, the God you believe in is not real. You just made him or her up to your own liking. The God we believe in is the God of the Bible, and he does not always act and work and look like we might imagine he would act and work and look. So we believe the Bible, not our own human fleshly inclinations. Like John in our passage today, Moses was also dumbfounded by the continual lack of faith and lack of belief in the people after they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They walked across the Red Sea as on dry land. They were fed the miraculous manna from heaven. They were delivered by the strong outstretched arm of the Lord from the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt as slaves. But yet, even all those miracles, they still did not believe. So what is What does Moses say? Very similar things to what John says here in John chapter 12. Look at Deuteronomy 29. He tells them to their face. Deuteronomy 29 verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders, But to this day, why aren't they believing? But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What? They could not believe because the Lord had not yet given them the capacity to believe. They could not understand because the Lord had not yet given them the capacity to understand. And John is presenting these two passages from Isaiah They could not believe. Why not? Don't miss this. Because they would not believe. They could not believe in God because of a persistent disbelief in God, an unbelief in God. And John again presents these two passages from Isaiah. These are people that, that they've pleaded over. And you may know people like this in your life. You may have family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, And you have prayed for them to believe the gospel. You've shared the good news of Christ with them, and they continue in unbelief. They will not repent of their own lives and their own lordship over their lives and surrender to Christ. The patience of the Lord will run out someday. Do not presume on the patience of the Lord. But you know what we do? We continue to share, we continue to pray. We continue to preach. Think about it. These people had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with a couple McFish sandwiches. It's incredible. These people had seen this man born blind, congenital blindness, unhealable with medical means. Now he can see fully. These people had seen 
a four-day dead Lazarus resurrected from the dead and walk out of the tomb. What was their response? Let's go kill Lazarus too. They had seen incredible miracles. And there are some of you in here today who you have seen the work of God. You've seen the work of his hands. You've heard his voice. You've read of his truth. You've seen the power of God completely transform others' lives. Yet you hold up a hand and say, I will not believe. And friends, here's the warning. There's coming a day because you will not believe, you won't be able to believe. That day of opportunity will run out. And this is exactly what Isaiah predicted in both chapter 6 and chapter 53. Uh, in, in chapter 53, the very familiar chapter of Isaiah, uh, John quotes here from verse 1. And I want to look at chapter 53 of Isaiah, and particularly verse 1, kind of as the lens through which we interpret the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. We're very familiar with chapter 53, if you've been in church. He was pierced for our transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But all that whole chapter 53 is to be interpreted through the gatekeeper of verse 1. Look at it on the screen, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, there's this sense of unbelief in Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, and in our day. And so let's read through that grid of unbelief, just a couple of verses from Isaiah 53. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, that's Jesus, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. No, I don't believe that. Nah, don't believe it. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. Nah. Surely he's carried our sorrows. Nah, I don't believe it. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. afflicted. I don't believe that either. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I don't believe it. All we like sheep have gone astray. Me? Astray? I don't believe it. We've turned everyone to his own way. Okay, I might believe that. And the Lord has laid on him, this is a substitution, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus dying for me? I don't believe it. This is the grid through which Isaiah 53 is presented. And that's what Isaiah is saying, and that's what John is saying. In spite of all the evidence, our bent is towards unbelief. Our tendency is towards skepticism. We see the same thing again within the context of John's quote from John, from, excuse me, from Isaiah 6. John quotes verse 10 of Isaiah 6 here in John 12, but look at verse 9 in the context, Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Friends, we can find all kinds of rationalizations for why I don't want to trust Jesus. We can determine all kinds of reasons why I'm not going to commit my whole life to him. 
Friends, you need to be concerned that the patience of the Lord will run out. To really believe, as we've seen in our study through John's gospel over the last 18 months, to really believe requires a new heart. It requires conversion. It requires what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again. You won't believe. You'll still be darkened in your understanding apart from God supernaturally bringing you to life. And John's commentary, again, between these two quotations from Isaiah, therefore, they could not believe. They could not believe. Now, just to clarify, in case somebody's missing, misunderstanding me, or you're thinking, yeah, that cold medicine really has caused you to speak heresy this morning. It's not that people are beating down the door to trust God, and God says, who is this? Ah, nope, you can't believe. That's not the case. It's not like people are saying, I want to trust Jesus, I want to trust Jesus, and Jesus says, no soup for you. You can't believe. That's not the situation. It's not that people want to believe and are clamoring to believe, and God is preventing those who want to believe from believing. It's that these people have never had an interest or desire to surrender and trust in Jesus. And the patience of the Lord will run out. The opportunity will close. That's the first truth from this passage. We see this really judicial hardening, this judicial blinding by God. There's a crisis of faith, at least the second crisis. Number two, a crisis of fear. We see here a crisis of fear. I won't spend as much time on these last two points as I did the first one, just in case you're looking at your watch, but this crisis of fear we see among the religious leaders. And John identifies the source of fear that they did express some kind of belief. They did express some kind of faith. But when we examine it, we put it under the microscope, we see that faith was not authentic. It was not genuine faith. Notice verse 42 and 43 again. John writes, nevertheless, he's looking back some four or five decades. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed, and I should put that in air quotes, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. On the surface, that sounds great. Oh, many of the authorities believed. Good job, Jesus. You got some of the really high up and upper echelon people believing you. I can remember whenever I was first born again um, at the age of 13, I was, I've always really been into music. My favorite music group is the Beatles. And so... Um, I began to pray for the conversion of Paul McCartney, thinking if we could just get Paul McCartney. Man, if we just got Paul McCartney, man, all these other celebrities, I mean, I loved every kind of music, you name it, in between, except for country and western, but every other kind of music I really loved. Sorry, you country fans. I loved it, and I said, if we could just get this guy, and then we get that guy, and I began dreaming at 13 years of age. I was just playing guitar. I said, I'd, I'd love to have a... a rock contest between me and Motley Crue. Yeah, let's do it. Let's have a contest, and the most rocking guy wins Jesus, right? I don't know what I was thinking. I was just young and really wanted to see people come to know the Lord. We don't need the celebrities. 
We don't need the upper echelon people. We don't need the government leaders. We don't need the religious leaders. So he says, nevertheless, some of the authorities, they, they believed, and again, on the surface, that sounds great. But the question is, was their faith authentic? Was it real? Was it genuine? You see, the problem John identifies here is that there was a fear that controlled them. They had the fear of man. And the Bible tells us the fear of man is a trap. It's a snare. You fear other people. You fear what they're going to say about you. You fear about your popularity. You fear about being ostracized from some community or some group. That fear of man is crippling. And this really serves as a lesson for all of us who would profess faith in Jesus. Let's learn from these negative examples of these authorities who express some kind of faith in Jesus, but they were motivated really by fear. And two things we see in them, negative things. Don't do these things. Number one, don't disguise your faith. Don't disguise your faith. That's exactly what these people did. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They recognize, oh, Jesus, he's a miracle worker. He's a prophet. He's an incredible preacher. Uh, I believe he's unique. He's special. He's one of a kind. But for fear, they didn't confess it. They disguised their faith. With each of these young men who were baptized today, I talked with them individually. And I talked about what baptism is. And I said, what baptism is, is it's your professing to the world, I trust in Jesus. I confess to whoever wants to watch. A couple hundred people here this morning. Thousands watching the live stream. No, I'm kidding. 23 people watching the live stream. Um, <laughs> you're professing before all of them. I surrender to Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. And here in this passage, we do have some kind of belief, but it's a belief that is unwilling to confess it. That's not true faith. That's not authentic belief. According to John, this does not and cannot exist. The person who disguises their faith, they chose to fear the Pharisees instead of following the Savior. And isn't this true of so many today? Isn't this so true of so many today? That they can have an intellectual belief in the facts of the gospel, the facts of who Jesus is and what he's done. And God calls those people to respond in faith and to exercise obedience to the commands of Christ in faith. People sometimes ask me, why do you think as Baptists it's so important to be baptized? I'll say, well, let me give you a few reasons since you asked. One, Jesus was baptized as an example. Number two, he commanded it in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. Number three, we understand as our brothers and sisters from that first century, their baptism was often their death sentence. They professed faith in Jesus regardless of the consequences that might happen in that culture. This crisis of faith and of fear led to another negative example for us. Don't only not disguise your faith, but secondly, don't desire men's praise. Don't desire men's praise. And this, isn't this the exact opposite of how we're wired as human and how we're conditioned as a society? We're wired and we're conditioned in this world we live in in 2023 to desire the praise of men. We're conditioned to pursue uh, human accolades. We're conditioned by our world to 
Try to get your 15 minutes of fame. Get your name in lights. Get your name in the paper. Go viral on TikTok. This is what the world tells us. This is what is important. And Jesus would say, don't desire men's praise. There's a seeking here. Look at verse 43 again. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I could spend a whole sermon on that phrase. They loved the glory, the accolades, the attaboys that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. This seeking of praise from people, you know what it's ultimately rooted in? It's rooted in fear. (laughs) This is a crisis of fear. Because they were afraid of man, they wanted man's approval. Because they were afraid of man, they were afraid of what other people would think about them. They were afraid of how this might impact their reputation, how it might uh, impact their street cred, how it might impact their position, their status, their income, their power. Notice how the psalmist said who we're supposed to be afraid of. Psalm 112, verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Friend, don't be crippled and shackled by a fear of what other people are going to think about you. Fear the Lord. And the fear and reverence and awe of God is a good fear. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians describes this fear of the Lord as being a motivating factor for why we walk in obedience to him because we fear the Lord. Philippians 2.13, work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must understand that all other approvals from people, from groups, from big names to small names, all that approval is going to end. The only approval that matters is the approval of God. That leads right to the third crisis from this passage I want us to see. There's a crisis of faith, a crisis of fear, and finally, a crisis of finality. Again, as chapter 12 ends, Jesus is turning away from the crowd that he's been petitioning and calling for for three years, preaching to the crowds, performing miracles for the crowds, feeding the crowds. The end of chapter 12, that ends. He's turning away from the crowds, and for chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, these last three days of his life, He's turning inward to his closest disciples. What we see here at this finality of chapter 12 is verses 44 through 47 are really a summary of all that Christ has been teaching in Galilee and Judea and Samaria for the last three years. Here's the bullet points of Jesus' message. Verse 44, you got to believe in me. Verse 45, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse 46, I'm the light of the world. Come to the light. Verse 47, hear my words, believe my words. I didn't come to judge people, but to save them. Again, this is a summary of all Jesus has been saying for three years. And he speaks this word in these summary of words just one last time. Now, some read those words in verse 47, and they say, hey, what did Jesus say? I did not come to judge. Yeah, that's my Jesus. That's the Jesus I'm hooking my wagon to. The Jesus that says, I didn't come to judge you. Ah, yeah, that's my Jesus. 
He would never judge you. You stop judging me. What did Jesus say? Do not judge. I'm judging you for judging me. We hear this all the time, don't we? So they say, this is the, my Jesus, the one that says, I didn't come to judge you. Oh, don't stop reading. Don't stop reading. Look what Jesus says in verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. <laughs> the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There is judgment coming, a final judgment. And it's at that final judgment when ultimately the patience of the Lord has run out. And what does he say? Who's going to be your judge on that day? The word. The word you heard this morning. If you got dragged to church today, and you don't normally go to church, and you heard these words this morning, I hate to inform you, you're going to be judged by the words you've heard today. Every gospel message, every Jesus saves billboard, every grandmother that talked to you about salvation, you may not feel like you're being judged by those words right now, but there's coming a day when Jesus is going to say, I'm not going to judge you. What's going to judge you? The word. The word that you have heard and that you have spurned your whole life will be your final judge. Let me illustrate it like this, and with this I'll close. Imagine you owned a house that is dilapidated. It is caving in. That's a foreclosure I have for sale if anybody wants it. I'm kidding. You come home to this lovely structure one day, and you see a pickup truck parked in your front yard, and you look on the side door, and it says, Home Inspector. And as you walk up to that porch, you see this home inspector walking out from behind the house. And you, hey, what are you doing trespassing on my property? And he goes, I know it's none of my business, but I'm in the obvious business of home inspections. When I drove by and I saw your house, I was concerned. And I saw your roof is caving in. And he says, I walked around the house and I, I could put my finger through the deteriorated block foundation like paper. And I took my flashlight and looked underneath the crawl space and I could see the floor joists are all rotten and termite eaten. And he says, I'm telling you, this is my job. Do not go in that house. It is not safe. And you say, get off my property. This is my house, I'll do it like I want. He follows your wishes and he leaves. You walk in the door frustrated and you slam that door as you go in and it was that slam that was the last straw. And the floor begins to creak and cave into that crawl space. The walls fall in. And just as that roof is toppling on your head and you're going to be buried in a pile of rubble, what do you remember? You remember the words you just heard. And those words are your judgment. Jesus says there's coming a day of judgment. All of us will stand before God on judgment day. What's going to be the judgment? The gospel you just heard. You've heard that Jesus died for you. You heard that he lived a perfect life and he was tempted in every way you have been tempted, but he never sinned. You've heard that he was crucified on a cross, though he was completely innocent and not guilty. You've heard that he gave up his spirit and he died on that cross as a substitute payment for you and for me. You've heard that he was buried in the tomb and that he, on that Sunday he was resurrected from the dead. 
And you've heard that Jesus ascended into heaven. And in the same way he ascended in power, he's coming back again. And you've heard today that when he returns, there will be a final judgment. Do not let the patience of the Lord run out on you. This is the word of the Lord. Believe it. That leads to my last thought. It's a quote from Sir Thomas Fuller, who was a 17th century Englishman. He said, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it will be too late.